This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today, I welcome Barry Nailbuff to the show. Barry will talk about a principled way of negotiating versus one that is stressful and brings out the worst in people. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Barry, I'm really excited to unpack your new book because you say very clearly right in the beginning that negotiation is stressful and it can often bring about the worst in people. And wouldn't it be better to have a more principled way to negotiate? So tell me more. Pull on that thread. The fact is that when people start negotiating, they become a caricature of themselves. They think they have to be the hostage negotiator, the jerk, the uh, the person they imagine from some fiction story. And my students at Yale, I love them. They are smart. They are empathetic. But when they do negotiations, that's not who they become. And as a result, they end up doing poorly and their classmates don't end up liking them. So the question is, how can you maintain who you are as a person, your ethics, your empathy, your IQ, and succeed in a negotiation without being a jerk? Well put. Now you have uh, a beautiful concept that you call the negotiation pie. So tell us about that because this is extremely important in the book and, and unique. What I think matters in a negotiation is understanding what the negotiation is about. So you're going to see that I'm going to become a little Spockian, a lot of logic here, and adding some logic to what people already understand in terms of the emotional side. So the question is, what are the parties negotiating over? And let me give a recent example. My mother was renting a house in Florida, and the person who was going to sell the house uh, put it on the market. But before doing that, he asked if my mother wanted to buy it, and she did. So now the question is, what is the negotiation over? And a lot of people might think it's over the price of the house. But actually, in this particular case, it was to save the 5% real estate agent commission. So let's say the market value of the house was 800000 So if she wanted to buy another house like it, she'd have to spend 800000 Similarly, if he wanted to sell it to somebody besides my mother, he was only going to get 760000 because he would have to pay that $40,000 commission to an agent. And so by working together, my mother and he, they could save $40,000. And my view is, yeah, they should split it, $20,000, $20,000. And in fact, they agreed on that really in the first five minutes of an email back and forth. Now, that still led to the question of, okay, $20,000 savings from what number? What's the right price? And here again, what we did is we said, well, let's just look. There were seven other houses that were for sale on that street this last year. Let's figure out what the price per square foot is, and we'll come up with a market price. And so it turned a negotiation into a, let's save this $40,000 pie, and let's figure out what the market price is, a data problem rather than a negotiation. So it's really finding what that additional value is and, 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 a, and an agreement to, to work together to benefit both parties. Absolutely. And the question is, who should be getting that 40000 
and you know is okay it's a hot market so does that mean that the seller should get it around the buyer well no the hot market just means the market price is a higher number but that forty thousand dollars can't be got without my mom being the buyer and my mom has no opportunity to save that forty thousand unless she transacts with this seller so therefore each of them is equally needed equally necessary and that's why I think they should split it evenly. I, I love that because it, it eliminates the the winner and the loser. There's a, a mutually beneficial agreement here, and it, it just brings civility to the conversation. It brings civility, and it brings IQ, and it brings empathy. Because once we've agreed that we're going to split the pie, then we're on the same team. And our goal is, how can we make a bigger pie by working together? And so what's the next step? It's, well, let's hire a lawyer together and share legal fees so we don't each have to pay uh, double, if you'd like. And so what are the things that we can do to continue to save money by working together? So how does one bring this to the table? Uh, certainly they can read your book and, and literally have a, a primer on how to do this. But for someone who is in that old mindset of that proportional division, how do yep. you entertain this? Well, so the question is, how do you start a negotiation? And the worst thing to do is start by just throwing out a price. And in particular, starting with a lowball number if you're the buyer or a super high ask if you're the seller. And we can come back to that. The next thing that's much better is to talk about what people's interests are rather than their positions. And that's from Fisher and Urey. That's from Gain to Yes. And that's terrific. But I want to do something even before that, which is I want to discuss how it is we're going to negotiate. Can we agree up front that what we're trying to do is create this big pie and split it? And if the other person says yes, then I know we're going to have a deal and we can try and make it a great deal. If they say no, then I know I'm negotiating with a snake and it's not going to be a whole lot of fun. Well, snake is a kind word, right? Because you actually talk about how to negotiate with jerks. So what, what do you do in, in that situation? How do you mitigate the snake? One of the things that I suggest and I've done myself is I explain to the other side that here is what the pie is. I'm prepared to go halfway and split it with you, but I'm not prepared to do anything else besides that. And so I've made a principal position and what they're doing tends to be something that's completely arbitrary. And my view is that principle beats arbitrary. And it's also why once you've taken that principle position, you shouldn't move from it 5% because now you've given up on your principle too. So Barry, what, what about things that you would advise against doing? What, what should we stick away from when negotiating? Sure. So let's take this example of starting with a super low offer or a super high ask. If you're the, if the right price for this uh, house is 800000 and you offer 600000 well, you're telling the other side either you're clueless or you think they're clueless and you're just trying to steal it from them. So that's a problem either way. And then when they say, look, I have another offer of 700 and you say, okay, 725 then the response is, well, wait a second, you've just gone up from 600 to 725 You know, I think that means you're going to keep on going up. And so I call this getting sunk by your own anchor. That people think in negotiation, you're supposed to soften up the other side. And you're supposed to uh, 
get them ready for, you know, for a low number. And so you've made such big movements and they should be happy. But actually making those big movements, I think, puts you in a weaker position, not a stronger position. And do you always advocate for negotiating in person? I mean, we're such an interesting remote world now as we navigate this pandemic journey. So much of, of business is being transacted on on Zoom and email. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, so I learned some surprising advice on this uh, from Cleo Knowles, who is the head of people at Virgin Hotels. And I asked her this question. Uh, and she said that as the person who does hiring, she doesn't always want to be negotiating with somebody on Zoom or in person because if she makes an offer to them and they're disappointed by the number, she doesn't want to see that disappointment in their face. Similarly, if she makes an offer that's a little too generous and they're going, yeah, right, she also doesn't want to see that as well. And so sometimes there can be an advantage uh, from the other side not wanting to see what your emotional reactions are to what's happening in the negotiation. And you should be respectful of that. You should ask, part of the whole process is, tell me, how would you like us to negotiate? Yeah, I appreciate that. Because we often hear, and and I know when when I'm coaching people who are negotiating salary, for example, the power of the pause to put your offer out there or your uh, conversation out there and then give space for the other person to respond. Absolutely. One of my uh, other uh, suggestions in this regard is the key lesson of improv, the yes and, which I will change into the yes if. Let people know that if they come and do what you've asked, there will be a there there that they will succeed. And so uh, if you're willing to let me work a four-day week, if we're able to hit this salary number, if I can have this many vacation days, if I can have this person as my mentor, I'm ready to sign up. Because the worst thing from their side is they bend over backwards, they make you all of these special treatments, and then in the end, you use them as a negotiating tool to get a better deal somewhere else. And they look terrible in front of their boss. They've caused inequities inside their company that they paid the price and have got none of the gain. So let them know, yes, if, rather than no, but. Barry, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. So Barry, I want to pick up on yes, if, and let's for a moment focus on salary negotiation. I get the business transaction relevant to the pie. How might you coach our global audience through the beginning steps of a negotiation with pie in mind when an employer puts a salary on the table and the receiver thinks, okay, this is way too low? Well, there are two answers to this. One is, if it really is way too low and there is going to be no there there, then let's not waste anybody's time. Fair enough. But 
let's imagine that there really is a, a potential. Uh, one thing I also suggest is never saying no to somebody. Uh, let them say no to me. Now, of course, if it's unethical, it's illegal, yes, I want to say no. So let's, let's, let's get that out of the table. But here, this goes back to the yes if. Uh, if I was planning to say no anyway, I'm not risking anything. If I suggest to them, if I let them know what it would take to make this happen, and then if they're prepared to do that, we have a deal. If they're not prepared to do it, they've said no to me rather than me saying no to them. And my favorite personal example of this is that when I asked my daughter to join the math team in high school, this was not her favorite activity. But instead of saying no to me, she said, yes, if we can get a dog. <laughs> well played. <laughs> uh, it was very well played because our contract didn't specify four years on the math team. So she got one year in the math team and we got a dog for 13 years. Great dog. So, I, and, and brilliant play on her part, I might add. Brilliant play. So again, what does it take? The yes, if. The other that, thing I, I want to make sure is that the negotiation creates value rather than destroys value. Uh, first off, it's one of the times, the, one of the first times they're really going to get to know you because in some sense, it's the first challenging conversation you've had. And therefore, you want them to like you more. You think you've got the job, it's already done. It isn't. It isn't done until you've started the work, you've got the whole agreement. And so one question I like to ask, I like candidates to ask is, help me understand where smart people you've hired have failed and why they failed. And that's kind of funny because I'm asking them to talk about failure rather than success. But two things will happen here. Either they'll tell me something like, well, in our company, teamwork is super important and people who are superstars but act on their own do not succeed. Now, if I'm that kind of person, then maybe I shouldn't take this job. But if I'm the team player, this is my opportunity to help them understand that I'm not going to be one of the super smart people they hire who ends up failing. And that's going to make them want me even more. Yeah, yeah. And it gives the candidate some incredible insight about the culture of the organization and the expectations. Absolutely. Oh, love that. Another question I like asking is, where are you least flexible? Now. Let me contrast that with where are you most flexible? Mm. If you say where are you most flexible, that's putting somebody on the defensive. If you say where are you least flexible, everybody's happy to tell you that. You know, I don't like Brussels sprouts. Great. I'm not going to give you Brussels sprouts. And then once they tell you where they're least flexible, don't ask for that. But right. do ask for other things because they've now told you those things they have more flexibility with regard to. I appreciate that so much. I want to take a, a, a little bit of a, a segue here and talk about gender issues in negotiation. As you and I spoke before the show, this audience, this global audience, uh, is majority of women who are listening. And historically, women have a lot of room to improve in how we negotiate. Uh, and men have a lot of room to improve in how they negotiate with women. So let's uh, there we go. Put it all out on the table. And uh, one of the uh, there's a, a whole burgeoning field in this area. It's incredibly exciting. Uh, one young researcher, Nina Roussel, 
who's now starting at MIT, uh, did a fantastic study of job offers that took place on Hired.com, which is a leading platform for engineers. And what she discovered is that women engineers were being paid around 3% less than men engineers for the same job, same qualifications, same locations. And the explanation was that women had put on the application a slightly smaller, a 2% smaller asking wage or expected wage. And that difference in ask fully explained the difference in salary. Wow. One view is, okay, women should just ask for more. But I'm not buying that because I don't even know what it means to ask for more than a number you don't know what it is. And I want something that's a systemic change so it doesn't put all the burden on women. And what's great about this particular case is when Hired.com discovered this issue, they changed their hiring process. And on the application now, they put what the median wage is for a job with those qualifications, that location, that experience. And you're not required to put in that median number, but with that information, the ask gap between men and women disappeared and the salary gap ended up disappearing. Barry, I'm so grateful that you shared that story because I agree with you that one of the biggest problems especially for women, is we, we often struggle with salary transparency in an organization. And, and how do you know where to even start if you have no factual information about what salaries are? So this is, this is a great, great bit of information. So I'd love to get more salary data out there. I also think it's completely reasonable to ask questions in this regard. So if somebody says, we've had states now banning questions about salary history, the end result is now companies say, what is your expectation? And that's uh, and it turns out that uh, work by Laura Adler has shown that uh, companies don't give women the same credit for an expectation number as they give men. Uh, and so in some ways, it backfires by moving to expectations than salary history. Um, again, uh, People don't like to talk about salaries. I think there's a study which says uh, individuals would rather share their sexual disease history, sexually transmitted diseases, talk about those compared to what their salary is. Uh, And so uh, it's a challenge. One solution I would propose is simply turning the question around and saying to the company, I'm prepared to work for market wage, and I think you know better than I what market wage is. And so Help me understand what the market wage is, and I'll confirm that that's sort of appropriate for me. That is excellent. And have you seen this working in action? Has, has this been something that you've seen results? Uh, I have, especially uh, when uh, one side is less knowledgeable. And let's add to that, because it's not just the salary. I also want to know, what are the expected raises going to be? What are the expected bonuses? What are the criteria for those bonuses? Because if you know going in that bonuses are likely to be 30% and they could go as high as 40 and as low as 10, and somebody says, you did great work and I'm giving you this 15% bonus, you can say, time out. That doesn't accord with my understanding of what the bonus structure is. So ask ahead of time to understand 
how bonuses are determined, what are the criteria, what are the sizes, so that you know what it is that you can expect. So Barry, I have another tactical question. What to reveal and what to keep hidden? Walk us through that. I think people keep way too much information hidden in a negotiation. They're scared that uh, everything you say can and will be used against you, sort of like a Miranda warning. Yeah. Uh, so let me turn this around and ask you a question, if I uh, may. We've may. got Alakaya and Bernice who are doing a negotiation that has to end Friday at five. And if they don't get a deal by Friday at five, it's no deal. But it turns out Alakaya has a Wednesday at five deadline that he needs to hit. And Bernice doesn't know this. Should Alakaya reveal this to Bernice or not? I think yes, because that will move the negotiation along. Okay, but you know, it's sort of, it's putting him in a shorter deadline. He's going to feel pressure. Yeah, yeah. So coach me through it. But actually, you're right. I'm going to, I just didn't want to let you off so easily. Uh, So here's the thing. When is Bernice's deadline? It's also Wednesday at five. Ah. Because if they don't reach a deal by Wednesday at five, they're going to have no deal. Her deadline is the same as his deadline. She just doesn't know it. Right. Right. And so four o'clock on Wednesday, he's going to feel lots of pressure and she won't. So this idea that somehow I shouldn't tell the other side this bad news, actually, no, it's only bad news if I keep it hidden. Right. Right. Uh, Another example, you're selling a gas station and your goal is to take a trip around the world. Should you reveal that to the buyer? You know, it's it's interesting. I've seen this come up with vacations and other things. And often uh, clients will say, I will tell them when the offer is minted and Mm -hmm. not tell them before. And it often backfires and sometimes it works. But I, I'm a proponent of transparency. Well, uh, if it's I'm selling a station because I'm having a nervous breakdown, okay, <laughs> maybe I don't want to say that. Fair enough. But, but there are good reasons and bad reasons to be selling your business. A bad reason is this is about to become a super fun cleanup site right. or the highway exit ramp is being shut down so there are going to be no more cars coming here. A good reason is I have this dream that I want to travel around the world. That's not bad news about the value of what I'm selling. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, from the seller's perspective, from the buyer's perspective, this is good news, not bad news, and people keep it hidden. They say things instead like, I'm planning to retire, or it's personal. Mm-hmm. Which is cryptic, yeah. Both cryptic and not helpful here, because again, now they have to worry a little bit, is there some bad reason they're selling, as opposed to this being a good reason? And it also destroys the ability to come up with pie-creating opportunities. So if the person says they're selling because they want to take a trip around the world, a reasonable question to ask is, well, that's amazing. That's great. Tell me, what are you planning to do when you come back? There we go. And the person's uh, answer is, well, actually, I'm going to have to go look for a job. And that's why I need a big reserve fund to help tide me through when I come back. Well, if you think this person is a great manager, you can say, you know, as soon as you get back, I'm happy to hire you. I love the work you've done. I'm sorry to lose you for these two years, but you have a job ready and waiting upon your return. And now you've created value, but you will never get there. If the person says, I'm planning to retire and spend more time with my grandkids, the response isn't, 
Oh, well, then can I offer you a job? Barry, I have learned so much from you today. Here's to creating and splitting large pies. But I want to tell our global listening audience about the book. It's called Split the Pie, A Radical New Way to Negotiate by Barry Nailbuff. Barry, I wish you continued success. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you spent time with me today. May you create giant pies, you and your listeners, and split them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave a review because this helps new listeners find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.